0: to tell their stories about what they've learned along the way and share some of their wisdom with us. I'm so thrilled you can join us. This episode of Collective Wisdom is brought to you by Umatoni Jewelry. When Umatoni Thuku Benzigo was a teenager, she used to sell Kenyan jewelry to her friends and family after she'd returned from her summer holidays on the African continent. But she didn't just want to sell Kenyan jewelry, she wanted to do some good while she was at it. So today, Umatoni works with artisans from two of Kenya's largest slums. And by purchasing the jewellery, you're not just buying an aesthetically pleasing piece, think timelessly elegant gold hoops or handcrafted chunky chain necklaces, but you're also supporting the dreams of those artisans that dare to change the cards that life's dealt them, and in turn, their family's future. With a 360 ethical and sustainable promise, Umatoni Jewellery is also elevating the narrative that jewellery is an agent for social change by looking at luxury through the lens of culture, skill, and community. So head over to umatonijewelry.co.uk That's U-M-U-T-O-N-I jewelry.co.uk to find out more for yourself. Thank you so much to Umatoni Jewellery. Hey there, my wise friends, and welcome to this episode of the Collective Wisdom Podcast. This season is dedicated to inspirational women from around the world, as we're celebrating International Women's Day on March the 8th. And this week, it's the turn of Mickey Gaffinstone. Mickey is a parenting coach, educator, and expert in the science of behavior change. And today, we'll be exploring her unique insights into the world of modern parenting. Mickey's approach to parenting is based on her own experience as a mother of two children, who, she says, taught her more than any class or book ever could. She's now on a mission to help parents raise their children with empathy, respect and compassion. I am so excited to have Mickey here today to share her wisdom and some of her best stories with us. We talk about how to have better conversations with your children, especially the teenagers, and the magic that happens when you're able to walk away from blame. I wish there were more people like Mickey in positions of authority and leadership. The world would definitely be a much better place for it. So, joining me today, I have Mickey Gaffinstone. Mickey helps all humans reach their goals, but she has a real specialism and a deep fondness for coaching parents in order to help their children succeed while at the same time enhancing their family life and making it more fun and enjoyable. Mickey brings both the science of human behavior, she has a string of qualifications to her name, together with her own hands-on experience as a parent. She's lived in eight different countries, which is how we got chatting when we met on a coaching program and raised her children in four of them. As a former registered nurse and a Montessori assistant teacher and parent of two amazing young men, Mickey has a stunning breadth of applied knowledge. This informs her ability to understand adolescence, what their behavior is actively communicating, and how to keep the lines of communication healthy and open well in, into their adulthood. She's got a beautiful outlook on life and seeing the best in people that really does mean she wears her compassion on her sleeve. And I'm so looking forward to having her share some of her wisdom with us here today. So Mickey, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, Right from when we first met, we had that, you know, having lived in many different countries in common, but also you do have this really um, caring, outwardly focused people, centred uh, focus in life, which makes you just, yeah, very compelling to talk to. Uh, and I know that in, as well as being involved with humans, you're also a huge animal lover. Uh, that, that just <laughs> made me laugh when we first met and you were talking about all the, uh, the host of animals you had at home. So tell us a bit more about that, first of all.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. And animals, yes. Right now we have five dogs and five cats. But we moved from Maine to Colorado and while we lived in Maine, we had chickens, ducks, a couple of goats, (laughs) Um, just, you know, all all the things and I was ready to put up a beehive and then we had a bear come through and the bear took the side off uh, the (laughs) shed. I was like, okay, maybe that's too far. So we didn't do that, but yeah. Animals, they're fun.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I think it's that you just have this, yeah, natural caring instinct. It's just looking after things, whether it's animals, people, yeah, just surrounding yourself with that sense of taking care of things, which I guess, would you say that's something that's um, that you, you've just had innately? And in, I mean, you know, you trained as a nurse, Montessori teacher. There's, It, it seems to be a theme in your life. It it absolutely
1: is. And my mind just went back to when I was a small child, and I was actually living in the outback of Australia. And my brother and I used to go on forays out into the bush. And if it didn't have a collar on, and we could catch it, it would come home with us, because obviously Mm. it (laughs) help. So uh, my mother would come back from work and find some very interesting things in the bathtub. You know, and, you know, boots would be filled, you know, Wellington boots would be filled with things. And we just, we were always bringing stuff back. And we didn't know the difference between poisonous and not. So um, Mm. I had a couple of pets for a while. One was a a red back spider and one was a blue back spider. And it was years later I discovered they are sort of relatives of the Black Widow. So, wow. (laughs) So you've had a few
0: probably narrow escapes by the sounds of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that sort of innocence helped me, you know. I just I didn't mean any harm and I didn't know that they could harm me, so we were all yeah. fine. I and you, know. I I, mean, I remember it.
0: you we were talking about this when we first met. You moved to Australia at quite a young age, so so travel's been kind of in your blood as well. I I moved
1: when I was 6 months old and wow. I've been moving ever since. Yeah. So, um eight countries but 13 international moves so far and then you know, across countries and, and what have you, back and forth, lots of moves. It's not unusual for me. I I more have an issue thinking of what would it be like to stay in the same place? I have no concept mm. of this at all. I don't know.
0: Yeah. So where, where are you currently based? Where's home at the moment? I'm in southern Colorado
1: and it's close to New Mexico. So we're usually pretty warm right now. It's below freezing, but um, wow. usually it's warm here. Yeah. So yeah, and sunny.
0: And are there are there places that stand out as being um sort of favorites that do you have sort of places that you think, oh, I'm really nostalgic for for some of the places that you've lived?
1: Oh gosh, yes. Um I loved living in Singapore. I had the best time living in Singapore. It was amazing. I had a great time when I lived in Malaysia. So Southeast Asia I really love and travel within Southeast Asia. Oh, I've maybe. been fortunate enough to Himalaya hop or Himalaya as you're supposed to say it. So I've I've been to a number of countries and I actually traveled in Sikkim with a group of friends and the crown princess of Sikkim. So that was a fascinating trip and I got to do a helicopter ride and, you know, all sorts of fun. It was um, it was amazing. And Ladakh, Ladakh is a country I, I adore. it's part of india but i still kind of think of it as being separate they still have a king it's a title it's not a power thing but i actually had tea with him and he was great like another group of friends
0: tea with the deck wow
1: wow yes
0: and he likes to ride
1: a motorbike and uh very cool guy absolutely yeah quite young a lot of fun um and then one place that was on my bucket list, well, Sikkim was as well, but uh, Bhutan. I got to go to Bhutan and wow, <laughs> like that just, yeah. everyone, that was incredible. Everyone I meet me.
0: who says the sky is just a certain color of blue and just amazing.
1: Yeah, no, Bhutan is just, yeah, I, can, I don't even have words for that place, but it's amazing. Yes, yeah. absolutely. If ever, if ever it's possible to go, go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So do you think it's that that kind of um, energy and drive that you get from travel that has sort of inspired who you are as a coach and, and, you know, helping people reach goals and dreams and think outside of the box and maybe dream a bit bigger? Has that has that been part of it?
1: Definitely, definitely. I mean, when I was a tropical diseases nurse in London, and looking on a a gray day outside, funnily enough, that was January, and just sort of thinking, okay, what's next? And then funnily enough, a patient that we had, she was on her way out of there, said, Oh, I I work in an orphanage in Bangladesh, which you?" we could do with you over there. And I was like, what a great idea. So I I literally, you know, packed in my job, packed a backpack and and off I went and I didn't have any money. Like (laughs) I had to get a grant to get the flight over and I didn't have a game plan for afterwards either. So I think sometimes you just got to make a leap and see where you land. It sounds awfully brave, but if you're only responsible for yourself, which I was at the time, then why not?
0: Yeah, then you can do that. And w- what did you find when you got there? I mean, it must have been actually really rewarding work.
1: Wow. Bangladesh was the most incredible learning curve ever. <laughs> and I ended up, I went for six months. I stayed for nearly three years. I loved being there because I had something I could do. Like if if I went over there without something to contribute, I think I would have felt out of place And and, you know, why am i eating food when nobody you know people don't have food um that would have bothered me but because of my medical background i was able to jump in and sort of help so that felt good i liked that and while i was there they had a major flood cholera epidemic Mm -hmm. um i volunteered with red crescent and their version of red cross and um we had People who would normally be on the train tracks or, you know, just sleeping on the street, they would come in for medical care because normally they can't get any. And it was, it was dramatic. You know, you had dying babies and the whole nine Mm. yards, but I was pleased that I could contribute something, even if it's, it's a small drop in the ocean, but, you know, that's what the ocean's made of, right? Lots of small drops. So I contributed mine.
0: It sounds um, like it was actually work that was, you know, really hugely impactful in its own way. I
1: I think for when you go to a place like Bangladesh, there's so much poverty everywhere. There's so much going on that the only thing you can really do is focus on your small Mm. section. You know, the people that you come in contact with and just do something for them because you cannot do something for the whole. Um, You know, it's just the, the problem is too huge. So, you know, and I'm not going to go in there and fix everybody. That's not my role. So I just worked with whoever came my way. Um, I had a couple of um, people who worked for a high commission there that were diagnosed with um, tuberculosis. So I made sure to give them treatment every day for, I think it took us 10 months, but we we got through that. Um, Yeah, I had a few experiences like that. And there was a place where I lived. There was a slum area next door called Bustis, and the gentleman in the house where I lived, he made it a habit to go walking through there every night. And he was American, but he could speak Bangla. And he would be walking through and chatting to people and saying hello, and one night he came running back and, you know, yelled at me, grab your medical bag. So. I grabbed it and went with him. I had no idea what I was going to, but there was um, a little boy had fallen into an open fire and his leg was burned. Mm -hmm. So luckily I had the stuff I needed, which was great. So I just made sure he was clean and wrapped him up and told everybody not to touch him and leave him to me. And I went every day to redress the wound and so on. And he didn't get an infection and it healed with minimal scarring. So I was thrilled that was just like because that could have gone badly and then what do I do you know but it didn't so I'm, I'm happy that it didn't
0: so life really has been a big adventure for you I mean there's been so much travel so many different experiences it's been yeah incredibly full so what took you from that sort of nursing world into the world of coaching
1: Oh, several steps, several steps and several countries. The thing is, every time I move, where I'm living requires something different. Um, You know, when my kids were little, I became a Montessori assistant teacher because, well, they were little and they were in Montessori and I wanted to know what they were doing. And I could keep the same hours as them pretty much. So that Mm -hmm. worked out. Yeah. Nursing tropical diseases doesn't translate to every country you go to. So that, that was a feature. But I I went into, I became a board-certified behavior analyst before really getting into coaching. Um, And I found that the science of behavior change is, is excellent to know. It's very helpful. It's a great place to jump off from. But as with all areas of psychology, each little piece has its own thing, you know, and everybody else is wrong or no, we don't do that. We only do this thing. And over time, I found that it was rather restrictive, because not everybody needs applied behavior analysis all the time. There are different Mm. things. Mm. And I'm always studying because I love to study. So things like polyvagal theory, hugely important, like what a breakthrough. And you have to be able to use that to help kids regulate, and adults for that matter. You know, anybody that's losing the plot could do with some polyvagal theory assistance
0: so Um, to to dig into that what you know this is this is about your vagus nerve and about regulating your own emotional so so what exactly when you say that
1: well for kids for example um you know i've done a lot of work with kids with autism Mm. and they can become upset and escalated very quickly and sometimes it's puzzling as to why but you don't necessarily need the why immediately if you can get in at the ground floor. And what I mean by that is when a child's about to become really upset about something and they're going to do a behavior you don't like, there's a telltale sign. Every kid has something and the parents are going to know what it is. The teachers might know what it is. It depends on, you know, how many they have in the class and so on. But there's some little tick that they do or, you know, they'll start chewing on their fingers or or wriggling or something. Mm. And if you notice that point, you can get the child out of the environment because it doesn't matter what it is. Just like get them out of the, that environment, and give them something calming to do that is not electronic. So if you can look at squirrels running around in the trees, or you know just stare at the grass and count some blades of grass, or anything that's that's requires your focus but is not stimulating. Mm-hmm. And then maybe some music, a little humming or a little singing, just something to take the focus and disperse those hormones. Because when your brain is flooded with cortisol and adrenaline, and you've got all that fight or flight stuff going on, which is what happens when you become dysregulated, you can't hear what somebody's saying to you. You mm-hmm. can't access somebody telling you to calm down which by the way has never worked in the history of being told to calm down <laughs> but, telling me you know, to calm down <laughs> right i am calm but <laughs> you know they can't hear you they, they um, can't hear the, those words because you're ready to run from the saber-toothed tiger this is a a survival thing they're, they're in survival mode but yeah. once you've had that calming period which could be 10 minutes could be 20 minutes it depends and go for a little walk, you know, just get the body sort of regulated again. Now they can hear you. And then you can figure out, is it time to go back to that environment? Do we need to do something different? But you can head off some pretty huge behaviors that way. Mm -hmm. And for adults with anxiety, you know, as the anxiety starts to escalate, okay, have a go to thing that you can do that's going to be calming, like yoga is wonderful. But if you have some kind of soothing music that you just sway to, that's enough.
0: Mm, just... mm. Or maybe even just a of... taking a really deep breath feels like it's slowing you... down. Yeah. Breathing
1: techniques are great too, because yeah. if you're doing a slow breathing, like I like the five, 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 you breathe in slow for five, um, hold for five if you can, breathe out slow for five, pause do it again. The number can vary, but five is pretty good. And then what that does is it tells the body we're safe. There's no saber-toothed tiger. You can't breathe like that if you're running from a saber-toothed tiger, <laughs> right. right? So everything must be good. And the body's sort of, ah, okay. And the hormones, ah. yeah. yeah. So that's why breathing works. Um, yeah. it's, it's not a hokey thing. It actually does work.
0: And I think it's fair to say that, you know, maybe children with severe anxiety or autism have extremes of this, this behavior, but it's actually something that, especially during adolescence, but, you know, we, we can all relate to that moment of dysregulation where we kind of lose the plot more than is in perspective with, with the situation. So a lot of what you're saying actually makes a lot of sense all round
1: yeah i mean especially for teenagers and the thing is the more you do it the more they get to recognize the signs of oh hey i need to go do this thing Mm. but teenagers you know they have my abiding sympathy every teenager ever because i'm sure you remember it's a time when your hormones are going nuts the other kids at school have got their issues and and so it's like going to school with a bunch of velociraptors like it's just it's a hairy time for kids and then the family are trying to figure out, well, how are we going to handle this? And when kids are sort of throwing stuff at you, the, the natural urge can be to control, right? Like, no, you can't do that. You have to go here. Or you want them to make good decisions, so you tell them the decisions. Mm-hmm. But that's not them making a good decision. That's you imposing your will. While it may be well-intentioned, they are not exercising the muscle of decision-making. So if if the parent does that instinctive thing and says, okay, hey, we're all going to do this and I'm going to control you these, these ways, when the child's not in that environment, they have no yardstick. They have nothing to measure their own decisions by. And so they're going to make some pretty weird decisions yeah. because they have to. So personally, I'm all in favor of kids having blue hair when they're, you know, 12, rather than going and getting a facial tattoo when they're 16. You know, um, <laughs> that yeah. kind of thing. It's like moderate where those experimentations happen so that it's nothing that you can't well, come it's back that,
0: from. It's that old thing about pick your battles, understand where yeah. your lines are and where the lines are that you want to draw for. I mean, I think yeah. as, as parents, we all have that sort of, that's part of the evolution, isn't it? Moving from when they're small, where... Okay, these are the things you don't mm-hmm. do, usually for safety. and then, as they're getting older,' it's, right. it's how do we expand that but still make it feel like we're all on the same page about it. Um, so what are your you know what do you find are the most common things when you're working with families those those sort of classic breakdowns in communication? what are the sort of most common scenarios and and the ways i mean just even talking about breathing and understanding your own your own emotional system seems to be at the heart of it but if you could sort of paint a picture for the types of people that you work with and where some of those solutions lie
1: Mm, some of them are more subtle than others um for example when your child comes home from school or they come in from a a day out with friends or whatever, it's very tempting to sort of chase after them. You know, what did you do? What was it like? Where did you go? And particularly if the child has any kind of anxiety, but teenagers generally, I think that they feel sort of squished into a corner and they're not going to answer you because that causes all things starts happening and, Oh, they're pressuring me. and, And you get all this, sort of I'm not a child right you know I'm I'm not a child I'm an adult where's my teddy bear this is sort of teenage years in a nutshell um and so instead of doing that it's often really effective to just say hey how's it going and and leave them with it particularly it's, it's especially effective if they are used to you chasing after them it's awesome because then suddenly they're like wait um this isn't right. Why aren't you asking me things? I need to tell you this. And they'll start spilling the beans left, right, and center. It's fascinating to watch. It's very helpful. And then a, a big thing that's actually quite subtle is when the child's telling you something like, oh, my friend at school was bullying another kid. Something like that's very emotive, right? And so the parent's very tempted to In fact, it's probably unconscious. They're going to say, oh, that's a terrible thing. They shouldn't have done that. I hope you did something about it. So what you just heard, the parents feeling supportive and they're feeling like, you know, I'm giving you good advice. But what the child's hearing is judgment, judgment, judgment. Mm
0: -hmm. And there's
1: no room for them to say what they actually did or to explore how they felt about that. You know, you, you don't know. That piece of information now because that line of communication just got shut down so they had no chance to tell you i was really scared by that or i found it kind of exciting or whatever it was like Mm. you don't know because now they they're not in the place to tell you and next time something like that happens they're less likely to come to you with it because they know there's a judgment attached so Mm it's It's not as obvious as some of the other things that we come across perhaps, but it's really important because every time you give that child your view of that event or that thing they're telling you, you've taken away their opportunity to figure out what they think. And so it's great to say, wow, that that's quite something. How did that how did that work out for you? What did you feel? You know, or boy, that sounds kind of hairy. And, and just leave it with them. Like, wow, you know, curiosity is the thing to bring rather than judgment. And then you learn some interesting stuff about your kids.
0: Yeah. So this, this moment where I guess there is a, a temptation to jump in and if you can just leave some silence but still be present oh, yeah. to see whether. Yes,
1: silence, the tool of the coach. But <laughs> yeah. silence is, is wonderful because somebody needs to fill it. And in this case, your child is going to want to fill it. So if you're not busy telling them how to think about something, they'll tell you what's actually happening. And then you have an idea. It's it's still not for you to judge them because they're figuring it out. But if you see that there are other options, it's always reasonable, I think, to say, well, I can see a couple of scenarios here. Do you want to hear them? And you just lay them out as well. I could see this could happen, or that could happen. What do you think? Mm. You know, and give them the tools to make decisions with. Give them the tools to make judgment calls for themselves. Exercise that muscle, and yes. that's a key part of teenage years.
0: Yeah, no, that that makes sense. I think I think as you're making that transition from child to adult, and as you say, I mean, I I loved what you were saying. I remember Steve Biddulph saying for the adolescent years. Um, as a child psychologist, he saw that, you know, you could take the one off the front. So sometimes you're dealing with a 12-year-old and sometimes it's back to two-year-old and then 13-year-old, right. to three-year-old. So, you know, that was a really useful point of reference for me. Not that I was always able to <laughs> rise above the, the moment where my 14-year-old turned into a four-year-old, but but I think it also, it is that moment where I imagine a lot of your work is taking some of the the blame from parents because often parents can be oh I've done the wrong thing you know and feeling like I'm getting it all wrong all the time which is also not a helpful place to come Mm. from
1: you know sometimes in social media you see that question excuse me you see a question of if you could eradicate one thing in the world what would it be Mm. my answer to that isn't the usual world hunger thing it's actually blame If I could get rid of blame, holy smokes. Mm -hmm. Because what blame does is if you're blaming yourself, you're beating yourself up. You're circulating all these negative thoughts that you believe about yourself. And the whole time you're doing that, you're very busy not taking action, not taking responsibility, because you cannot be blamed and responsible at the same time. Responsibility implies you're going to take action to do something differently. Mm -hmm. You're going to Take control of your part and say, okay, that was that. Now I'm going to do something different. What's that going to look like? Where do I go for this? You know, and and you're taking action. Blame sucks the energy out. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's just the most awful thing that we do to each other and we do to ourselves. And if you're blaming somebody else, then you're giving your power to them and saying, I have no responsibility here. There's nothing I can do. It's all on you. At best, it makes them feel terrible and really is that best. And at worst, you just give them the same complex you've got. Like it's really, blame is a hideous thing. It stops action. It stops people from moving forward. And parents, you know, you don't arrive with the book on how to be the perfect parent. And (laughs) nobody's ever going to tell you that you are, right? Because when they're looking at your parenting and telling you what's wrong with what you're doing, They are actually telling you a lot about themselves and nothing about you.
0: Mm. This is their
1: land, their story, their experience. It's got nothing to do with you. So all those times when other people tell you you're doing it wrong, it's their problem, actually. So thank you for the information, but I don't need it. And I'll do things my way, you know, and following instinct. But it's awfully hard when everybody's telling you their version of what things should look like. And, you know, they're not right. They have they have no way of being correct because they don't know your child, they don't know you, and they don't know the family situation or, you know, any of those things. So second somebody starts telling you, oh, you have to do it this way, all right,
0: thanks, bye. And that you know? is something I think yeah. that, you know, from your story, I remember you telling me about your own sons, and they didn't necessarily fit into a... A sort of normal standardized mold and i think that is your real skill through a learned experience is bringing that uniqueness to the fore and and saying just that you know i'm i'm going to have to lean into my own intuition from what i'm seeing uh-huh. in front of me for bringing this child into a space where they don't feel shamed or blamed or made to feel that they're doing something wrong is is just amazing. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and sometimes the battles that you, you pick are put on you, but you don't have to accept them. Um, mm-hmm. An example that comes to mind of that one is one of my kids was really into Spider-Man as a little guy. And he wore Spider-Man for 18 months. I kid you not. I had three outfits. It was one to wash, one to wear, one to repair. And we kept going through them and oh my goodness and I took him to his Montessori school not one I was working at and the teacher was very stern and she said you know this is not acceptable he cannot come dressed as Spider-Man he must wear normal clothes and and this was in Belgium by the way so there was a lot of like you know uh cultural stuff going on as well yeah uh how you're dressed how you appear and I I went home and I thought about it and I thought well You know, when I take Spider-Man off him, it's like peeling his skin off. (laughs) You can hear the sounds of torture from down the street. So do I really want to do this? And I decided, no, actually, that's not my problem. It's hers. She has the problem with this. So the next day I took him to school in his Spider-Man outfit with a bag of clothes. Because, of course, I always had clothes just in case I could get him to wear them. And I said, here you go you have a good time trying to put him in them. I will come back later and pick him up. And when I came back to get him, he was a very happy chappy in his Spider-Man and she looked rather frazzled and handed <laughs> me the back, not one word. And, and that was, I didn't hear about that again, you know. No, it's like no. my battle, it's her battle. I'm not going to stress my kid out and ruin my day over her problem.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think now we're understanding more and more that, children's sort of freedom of expression is is really valid it, it you know it's it's really a an important part of forming an identity and it, the more you you quash that from a very early age the less i mean that's that's back to the whole school's killing creativity if you like which is is now what i think we recognize is just such a damaging thing to do longer term that it's um that, that sort of what I'm going to wear and who I'm going to show up as, you know, all that play around um, putting on on different outfits and trying out different identities is really important.
1: Oh, all, all of the things that the kids are trying to do are because they need to do them. Mm-hmm. it drives me nuts that we send kids to school, make them sit down, pay attention, whatever that means, because think about it from the child's perspective, They haven't been out of diapers very long when they first go to school, right? Mm. Relatively speaking. And yet we're already expecting them to understand undefined concepts such as pay attention. Like, how do you define that for a five-year-old? What are you talking about? And you want them to sit down. Well, their bodies are made to get up and move. They're made to explore the environment. That's what we're here for so that you know where you fit in in your environment. You don't learn that from a desk. And you don't learn that from people yelling at you and saying incomprehensible things like behave yourself. What? (laughs) What does that even mean? You know, if you're alive, you're behaving. Animals behave. People behave. Like everybody behaves. For goodness sakes, a fish behaves. When it's trying, you know, the salmon swimming upstream to get to its spawning ground, it's behaving. So what are we actually asking them to do? Nothing that they understand.
0: So mm-hmm. they're trying
1: to navigate, well, okay, this person's annoyed at me now. You know, I feel unsafe because they're yelling at me, so I'm supposed to do a thing. I don't know what the thing is. I'll just not do anything, or, well, I'll try this, and then they probably get into trouble because they're still coming from the same place they were at two minutes mm-hmm. ago. So they don't know, you know, if a kid's banging pot lids together and you want them to stop, okay, but what do you want them to do? Because for Mm -hmm. them, they're probably getting the motion, the sound, the vibration. You know, they're getting a lot of things from this activity. They're not actually trying to annoy the big person. They're they're just accessing sensation. So if you say go play quietly, well, okay, what? Like that doesn't mean anything and it doesn't answer the need. So we start messing them up kind of early. So (laughs) by the time they're teenagers and we haven't let them explore anything, they're just bursting at the seams. There's a lot that they have to catch up on and find out about.
0: And it doesn't involve computers. And that is so that brings me to I mean, I I imagine that is such a common issue around screen times. How much screen time is it damaging? What are the rules around it? You know, and I, I know from my own personal experience, some of the biggest breakdowns in communication with kids are because they are just there with their xbox or ps5 or or on TikTok, and the parents don't feel that they're really in that world with them you know it's just not that they're in the same room but they're not together present at all
1: no they're they're not They, they have their own virtual reality going on and the thing with um computers and and the stuff kids access is it's very fast moving it's it's high intensity programming the brain I mean it literally does rewire the brain so their brains aren't like ours were when we were kids yeah and that's something you're now dealing with a new species like this child in front of you is not how you were so you can't parent them how you were parented even if you liked it you know you because it doesn't apply and they are in a different world and the more time they spend on screens and the earlier they spend them the less they're developing their social skills And they don't know how to people. And um, I I was attending a workshop recently. uh, And someone was talking about Gen Alpha, which is the young ones now the upcomings. And he was predicting that there's going to be a lot of teenage pregnancies with these kids, because they're not learning how to develop a relationship. So you can imagine when they hit teenage years, they're still going to have the same urges. Mm. and they're going to meet someone online and say oh hey you know you're cute let's hook up they hook up pregnancy ensues and and the guys just like well okay bye not because he's being callous or or you know badly raised or whatever but just he doesn't know what to do next and neither does she they haven't mm. learned any of these skills and if you look at the parents of that generation these are now the parents who are spending a lot of time on their phones You know the child falls over and scrapes their knee do they run and comfort them or do they take a a picture of it and put it on tiktok
0: right
1: Mm -hmm. parents Mm -hmm. aren't parenting now they're putting them on the screens from very early on it's a whole different thing and when parents are scrolling on their phones little kids have to get louder Mm -hmm. and and more wildly behaved in order to get their attention otherwise Mm -hmm. the parents aren't, aren't even aware they're there right so we are we are facing some unique situations that we have not had before and these kids have to be parented very differently because precisely because they're just not in the same world that we grew up in
0: so do you find yourself is is that one of the major issues when you're working with families um is that is that one of the sort of key components in just OK, well, let's set some ground rules, um, bring everyone back to the table, if you like, try and get more present with each other.
1: Boundaries are a huge issue in, in just about every case, because a lot of people haven't grown up with them, so they don't know how to set them. But here's the thing with boundaries. If you say you can do anything you like between this and this, you know, you give them two spaces, two endpoints, right? Go hog wild in the middle there. That's your ball pit, jump around in it. you can have a great time. Then the child knows that we I can't go further than this. this is where I end and something else begins, right? And they will test those boundaries. Oh please, just one more, give me five more minutes., ah, I'll be good That's their job. Their job is to test that boundary and see if it's solid and see if it's safe. Mm-hmm. The parents' job is to hang in there and not give in because the way you reinforce the behavior the strongest is to move the move the barriers move move the lines so an example would be uh you're going shopping with a child in the store child wants something and you say nope can't do that no we're leaving in a minute but i want that thing and they get louder and louder maybe they pull stuff off the shelves or kick the cart or, you know, do something that you're just dying of embarrassment from, right? Because everybody's now staring at you. You're a terrible parent. So you give in. Uh, what that just did is you can be growling at the kids. You can be saying, that's it. You know, you're never having this again. And you're, yeah. you know, you can tell them all the the things that come out at the spur of the moment. But what that child just learned is this is what I do to get what I want. This is what I do. This works. So next time, chances are they'll just escalate to that point because they know that's where the the happy spot is. And if you move the barrier again, and you last five minutes longer while they escalate more, well, okay. Now I'm going to do more next time. You know, you are teaching them how to how to get what they're looking for from you. And what they're actually doing is they they're checking their boundaries. They're not being spoiled brats. They're not being, you know, terrible individuals. They're actually doing what they're here to do. They have to test those boundaries because those boundaries are where they're safe. And if your boundaries are like bubbles and they pop at the first push, then, okay, that's not my boundary. Where is it? And then they're gonna fight like hell to find it. So, you know, this is escalating behavior And when you've got parents who are very permissive You know, like, oh, no rules here. We'll we'll all be in a happy space and do our thing. That poor child has no sense of safety at all. Mm. And they will push boundaries at school. They will push boundaries with friends because they are desperately seeking an end point. You know, where are the walls to my house?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And if they don't have them, then they're they're not very secure.
0: And so, yeah, I mean, do do you find that by simply sitting with families and I mean, you work online, presumably, I, I know for my sister, you've worked with my sister as, as you know, and, and do you find that it's as simple as saying, I mean, is there a sort of framework for saying, okay, we're going to take one aspect of what's, what's broken down here, what's not functioning, or is it you look at the, the sort of the, the, the whole family dynamic as a whole,
1: Mm. So the answer is yes <laughs> to both of those. You you kind of need an overview of how everybody's interacting, and then go for the low hanging fruit. Wow. Like what is the first thing that that we can alter so that things work better? And I'm never going to say, oh, do this. This is this is how it has to be. It's more a case of try this, see what happens. If that doesn't work, we have something else we can try. You wow. know, and and yeah. you tweet but it needs to be that the family themselves are happy with the results. It doesn't matter what I or what I think about it. It's it's how is it working for you? Given all the things that you, you have in this household, let's go for this thing and test that because motivation does not come out of the ether, right? You don't develop motivation, it's a muscle. Nope, that's not true. Motivation comes from success. So if you go for the low-hanging fruit and that thing works, then the next thing is like, oh, now what can I do? You know, that was good. Let me see what else works. And you build up.
0: So I'm right? getting a and sense it, that this is about you're facilitating a kind of co-creation where everybody gets yeah. to sort of express how they're feeling, what's what's going wrong for them, what's working, what's not working. And then it's yeah, yeah it's up to them as a unique unit to say, okay, this feels like something we can all buy into and all get involved with. Right.
1: Because, because it's dynamic. I'm not living in that household. So whoever I'm working with, it has to be them doing it and they're working with it. They're living Mm -hmm. with it. This is now their lives. So I can just say what I can suggest and what I see and what I've known work before. And, you know, if they're not happy with it, either because the implementation is hard or, the kid didn't respond how how we anticipated. Okay, there's always something else you can try. No problem at all. This is life is an experiment, right? Life is yeah. an adventure, It is an experiment. And you just test stuff out and see what works. So, you know, I don't have uh, an investment in the outcome. It's not my outcome. I can't control anything. I can just be here and say, okay, this is what I see. This is what I think might help try that and see what happens. Yeah. And. It's always going to end with try that and see what happens.
0: And it is, it's bringing that wealth of experience of, well, I've seen this work before, I've tried this out myself. But what I'm sensing really, Mickey, is this, this firm but fair, that is ultimately the sort of kindness of, of of communication. It's It's I am going to stay in my own integrity as a parent. I'm going to really learn what matters most to me. And I'm then going to communicate that firmly and fairly and bring people to the table that way is, is sort of at the grassroots yeah. of it.
1: And objectivity is your friend.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it really is. Yeah.
1: It, you know, when your own story gets in the way.
0: Oh, tell me about it. Yeah,
1: sounds You know, the, this child's talking to me this way. They're back talking. Well, they're disputing with you. You know, mm-hmm. I, I can agree that they're disputing with you. What that means depends on your own story. But if you take the story out, what are they disputing? Why, are, you know, is it a boundary thing or is it that you haven't explained yourself clearly or, you know, and, and sometimes you get some sort of old fashioned parents who will say, well, I don't have to explain myself to my child. Okay, there's no law that says you do. But if you want them to understand and maybe cooperate, it might be helpful to explain.
0: Yeah, you know, you don't lose yeah.
1: anything as a parent by explaining yourself. It's, it's not a case of giving excuses. You don't need to do that. But and there's no
0: sort of parenting. win or lose. I'm losing. If you're winning, it's more we're connecting and collaborating. Yeah, it's not a battle. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's, it's not a battle. And they're not set up against you unless that's the environment that's created. You can end up with that for sure. And in that case, there's some remedial steps, and that's a whole different way of going on. And it takes time. But if you want your children to talk to you when they're adults, keeping that judgment out of it and keeping your own story out of their lives is very helpful. And you know, th- this is a key story I'd love to tell you right yeah, now. Yeah, do, do. I'm, <laughs> I'm fascinated by this stuff. My, <laughs> my eldest son was learning French at school in Canada, and he wasn't. It wasn't doing brilliantly. It was not his skill set. And actually, what I just said then is quite telling. So hang on to that for a minute. I said, it's not his skill set, right? We moved to Singapore, and he had to learn Mandarin. And wow, blow me down. This kid was brilliant at Mandarin. He was doing trivia quizzes and all sorts in Mandarin within two months. Wow. And it was his top subject. So what happened there? Now, I said it wasn't his skill set. I was wrong the teacher had said to me he can't do french the reality mm-hmm. was she couldn't teach french <laughs> she's not getting it yeah. she was not getting the french to him because now he's a linguist he's doing his postdoctoral fellowship in linguistics and he speaks several languages yeah. very very well so yeah. If I had done the typical parent thing and started saying to people, oh, he's, he's no good at languages. He can't, you know, his French is terrible. He can't do languages. By the way, his French is great now. Um, you know, if, if I had done that, he would hear that story and probably never even try. Yeah. Right? And
0: yeah. then
1: his whole life now would be different.
0: Yeah. He wouldn't
1: be speaking all the languages he speaks. He wouldn't be mapping endangered languages and he wouldn't be a linguist like wow i would have totally gotten in his way
0: and it's Just so true that we, you know without even realizing it and sometimes it's grandparents and sometimes it's parents that oh she's the clever one he's the 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 the, the sporty one she's the pretty one you know and you you wear these sort of right. roles that that become so fixed if we're not careful that it it's it's often well, the also- hardest is change amongst the people who 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 have put those roles on you if you like
1: yeah and we do them so carelessly yeah i mean even as i'm explaining it to you i said it was not his skill set and the second i said it i thought no that's exactly what i'm not saying
0: yeah it was
1: his skill set it wasn't hers the teacher wasn't giving it to him in a way that made sense Yeah, But he picks up languages beautifully. It's a natural talent for him, actually. So thinking about it, she must have really messed it up to not
0: Well, and also, you know, I think it's a natural-born tendency if something's not working to go, well, it's not me. It must be you, you know, especially if you're in a situation where you're teaching. Right. Oh, I'm sure the teacher was fully convinced that it was his problem
1: and not hers. But the thing is, that viewpoint could have altered the entire trajectory of his life mm. and he could have spent his entire life thinking he couldn't do languages when actually he's brilliant at them yeah and you know I could have been instrumental in facilitating that in yeah messing absolutely that it soon and, becomes
0: oh yeah, yeah don't ask him about you know he's no good at that and um, right. yeah, yeah, yeah right yeah.
1: and that's something that wow you know if, if parents can watch out for that and not do it pure gold because yeah. that that is I think the most detrimental thing you can do to your teenager, particularly, is tell them what they're good at. Because you yeah. don't know. Yeah. They haven't tried yet. And the stuff he's doing in his work now, I didn't even know existed. So if I had stepped in and said, oh, I think you need to go this way for your career and you need to do that, again, he would be doing something completely different. And I'm sure it wouldn't be anywhere near as fulfilling as the stuff he's actually doing. So getting out of your teenager's way is a huge part of parenting.
0: Yeah, really and that's, that's the often the room. hardest thing to do, especially it's that temptation uh-huh. to fix when they come and they're anxious about what's gonna go wrong and what's gonna go right. And that's understandable, but as parents, it's so tempting to sort of step into a, a role of, I know I do this all the time. Um, yeah, but you could do this and you could do, you know, you, you'd be brilliant at that. and right. And you think you're encouraging and supportive, but you're not actually enabling. It's it's more setting limits. You're pulling the
1: rug from under them.
0: Yeah. It's yeah. pulling the rug
1: from under them by giving them those suggestions, particularly as they're probably not what they want to do.
0: Yeah. So yeah. just
1: saying, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. And And just leaving it and then, you know, that silence. But you have to trust that you have raised your child well enough that you can trust them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's absolutely. a big thing. Right? That, your that child, word trust well is, is so, it's so hard, you know, you can know it and you think I'm trusting them, but then to actually put that into action, what does that look like? Right. It's, are you though (laughs) are you really
1: trusting them or are you using you know I don't like the kids they hang out with or this isn't a great area or any of those things like what are you really saying and the child's looking for this they're looking for signs that you trust them they're looking for signs that you believe them and when they don't get them that's when you start getting some behaviors kicking up because they're, they're pushing back they want you to notice that Well, I can do things and they might not make good choices because they haven't exercised their decision making muscle yet, but they're going to jump through hoops to make you do something different. It's not functional the way they're doing it, but it's what they have at their hands. Like it's their tools. it's it's their
0: infinite game it's their life it's their it is their experiment so
1: they're establishing who they are and i think we can all look back at our own childhood our own teenage years and say yeah well remember that time you didn't believe me or remember that time when right or you never let me do such and such and i i could you know we, we all have these stories and it's It's even more so now, I think, with these kids, with all the computer stuff that's in, they have access to so much more that, frankly, you know, would would scare you silly if you knew half of what's available on the internet, really and truly. You know, there's um, some games for little kids where questionable people will make avatars and get into rooms where little kids are playing and their Mm -hmm. avatars have sex. I don't yeah. think I can name the the game because it, you know copyright or whatever. But the company know, and they say if you see anything, report it, and we'll ban them. The problem with that is your kid's already seen it.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So you know, people people are you know, there's questionable people out there, and they will find a way. So the best
0: like, thing as you parents, can... you know, you were saying about children. We're we're raising children now who have. The plasticity of the brain is being shaped in different ways, but we also do have to lean into our own intuition about what are the the limits, what are the the boundaries that we want to set in place around some of this stuff, and not necessarily, oh, just because everyone else is doing it, that's okay too. Um, Right? How I feel sometimes with, uh, you know, all kids having access to phones and and. Now there's pretty much nothing you can't access on your phone. So is it mm. relevant for an eight-year-old to have, you know, unsupervised use of a, you know, full internet access? And and it just feels, yeah no <laughs> feels no. like oh yeah what do we the, say? the answer has
1: to be no there, yeah. there are some very scary things out there.
0: Yeah. And
1: again, you can parent. You know, I'm I'm certainly not saying. Don't stop them from doing anything, but just guide, not shove, right? (laughs) Like, you know, here are your parameters, again, with the the Internet. And a thing that you can teach teenagers if they haven't got it already, it might need to be preteens, is things like Internet safety. What information do you give? What are some telltale signs that the person's a creep Mm. uh, that you're talking to? What kind of questions do they ask that they shouldn't be asking? and things like consent needs to be taught really young and different aspects of consent and and whether you can withdraw consent or not of course you can but you know you you need to be able to get this information across to kids and have that line of communication open you can talk to me about this and I'm not going to run away screaming or you know shut you down because it's uncomfortable those uncomfortable things where the kids need you
0: well, actually I saw something the other day, which I'll try and find a link to to put in the show notes, but it was about consent being likened to offering somebody a cup of tea. and it's just this brilliant um you know, quick sound bite on if you offer somebody a cup of tea and they say no, this is what they mean, and it it, it just it was a really helpful way to introduce a subject that, yeah, can be fraught and at what age you can introduce it kind of thing, and what no really means. and um yeah, it was very powerful. So I will try and find that because I think that might also be a, a useful thing to... I love I love having show notes that have lots of little links to other stuff. And, you know, uh-huh. this is all part of the context. Yeah. So, I mean, kindness is something that you clearly bring to every relationship you form as a coach. I, I imagine being in a space with you, it's a place where you can just say, phew, blame is just put to one side all the shaming and the judgment is just we're here to move Mm -hmm. forward i wonder if there's sort of an act of kindness that came to you when i was asking about you know how kindness shows up in in your world
1: you know i would like to point to fred rogers when he was alive fred rogers mr rogers neighborhood was showing acts of kindness left right and center that man was a walking act of kindness and he talked to children like they were human beings Mm. and he would just reflect back to them what they were saying to him particularly if they were upset about something and the kids felt heard they felt Mm. seen and they felt recognized and we don't tend to take time to do that with kids so I'm going to say a walking act of kindness would be Fred rogers. he was he was an amazing human being,
0: and I wonder if there's a there's a clip of him talking or you know, I'd love to put that again in the show notes uh, something. Oh,
1: there'll be lots. And there's one where he had um officer, somebody or other, come in to see him. and the officer was uh, a black man. And he got them both to take off their shoes and socks and put their feet in a a bowl of water together because it was a hot day. Now he did this at a time when there was still some elements of segregation going on, and this just wasn't a thing that would happen normally.
0: Mm. And
1: he did it so naturally and so, you know, non-controversially that it really illustrated people: what is the problem here? Like, why can't we do this?
0: This And and he did it in a very
1: non-aggressive way. Yeah. You know, it, he just really showed kids, yeah, we're, we're all people, we're all here and we're all helping each other. And he would even say that, you know, whenever there's a disaster, whenever something terrible happens, look for the helpers. There are always helpers.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. so true. And he's clearly been a real influence and inspiration to you, Mickey, and that's now you're paying it forward. Right, yeah, yeah. I like that. yeah yeah. and then you know finally I always ask people about music and I think I think music can be a real bridge between especially between adults and adolescents you know Mm. it's it's a really it's a sort of safe common ground because you can go on about dad music and you can you know I know um in our family Taylor Swift is a big unifying force you know everybody can get behind that (laughs) why not what um what what's the music that sort of inspires you I am a huge Queen fan been a queen fan
1: forever. I grew up on queen. I even played hooky from school one day, got on a train and took myself to a queen concert when I was younger than I should have been. Queued up for hours to get in and got right to the front on the Bohemian Rhapsody tour. So no regrets, got into a world of trouble, but no regrets. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was worth it. (laughs) Worth every second. Like Freddie Mercury was the man. So and I, I think every generation has to appreciate Queen. Like, how can you not?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah.
1: And I love the Mavericks, like David Bowie. Like, yeah. him at any given time, and he's different.
0: So, do you have, is there a favorite Queen song? Because I don't think we have any Queen on the list, actually. So that will be a, a really welcome addition. But is there a favorite one?
1: Okay. If I, depending on my mood, it could be Fat Bottom Girls because it's just, you know, it's hilarious, and why not? Yeah. Or of course, the classic Bohemian Rhapsody. That's if you just want to get lost for five minutes. It's Bohemian
0: Rhapsody. Out. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll um, we'll put both on. I think that would be a, a, really a good sort of contrast and a bit of humour and a bit of just inspiration. Yeah, it's, it's one of those mood lifting songs is not it you can't help but be kind of uplifted at the end of it so yeah
1: you can't sit still listening to bohemian rhapsody It's no
0: no that's amazing and i loved i loved the movie um that was done a couple of years ago uh portraying uh freddie mercury i just thought that just really brought the whole story to life in a way that i Yeah, probably didn't understand before that. And then, so finally, you know, collective wisdom is all about that piece of wisdom that, I mean, you really exude it, especially when it comes to building communication, helping families navigate tough times. There's been so much, you know, even just take a breath. That is such a wonderful piece of advice. Take a step back, lean Uh into that objectivity. But is there one piece of wisdom that has helped you along the way.
1: Helping me, I would say the phrase it's not about me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that because if you can get yourself out of the story that you're working with, things go much smoother. It really isn't about being validated or having somebody say, "Oh wow, you're you're a rock star." You know, it's it's none of that stuff. That isn't really important. The question is what are the people that you're working with? What are they going to do with this? And is it helpful or not? And yeah. will they will they show up and do the thing? So it's not about me. It is helpful in so many ways because, you know, imposter syndrome goes away if you stop worrying about what other people think.
0: Yeah, yeah. Right.
1: Imposter syndrome is all about worrying about what other people think. Yeah. It has nothing to do with your skill set, nothing at all.
0: You don't even allow
1: yourself to appreciate your skill set because you're busy worrying about what everybody else thinks about your skill set. And it's like, they're not. They're worried about themselves. So, you know, they're not looking at you. Yeah. And when you can realize it's not about me, it's like, okay, now you can get some things done because it gets out of the way.
0: I can move forward. Yeah. No. Well, it's been a joy talking to you. And from a very personal point of view, I know um, my nephew who has, he's on the autistic spectrum and he's had such a sort of powerful shift in his perspective in seeing his own strengths. It's really been, you know, amazing to, to watch that, that transformation as he's been working with someone who's really been able to help him just see his own real gifts and, and unique strengths and talents so from a very personal point of view i'd like to say thank you but no thank you for sharing all your wisdom and for anyone listening who's interested you can either work with mickey where can we find you
1: the easiest thing is www.gaffinstone.com
0: fantastic that's, so that's... that's
1: my name mickey gaffinstone so if you look up gaffinstone.com i'm there and uh, you can see all kinds of things that I do. Yeah, um, I can highly I'm recommend. Really
0: easy.
1: I'm really easy to find on Facebook. Just look well, at it's me. It's quite
0: an unusual name. And so, yeah, but I can also recommend you have a, a mailing list and there's just you get these lovely doses of inspiration and just simple, very simple little ideas like have a big glass of water every morning. Try that <laughs> right. for a week and see whether you feel any better about life.
1: Um, I like to do really short emails, like you don't have to scroll for them because I don't like reading really long emails. Yeah, so I just yeah. send the quick bite.
0: Yeah. And not it, so. so if you want a dose of inspiration, I can highly recommend that you just get Mickey's emails into your inbox. And, um, and, yeah, I think wherever you show up, you make a lot of sense around anyone who's struggling with teenage issues, you know, family dynamics. It's really worth following Mickey and just seeing what she has to say. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed myself.
0: I do hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I always find spending time with Mickey and her non-judgmental perspective on the world so refreshing. If you liked what you heard and you want to find out a bit more about the work she does, you can find her at gaffinstone.com or on LinkedIn. And as we said in the conversation, if you'd like a little dose of just practical tips and tricks that are often quite amusing and entertaining, then I highly recommend that you sign up for her newsletter. I'm sitting in my office looking out over a bed of beautiful snowdrops this morning, and I'm reminded that spring is very much around the corner. Thanks again so much for joining me, and I hope you have a good week